It is a delight to be here, to be a part of something that is so fresh and so new. It's a little bit deja vu, thinking back to St. Luke's. We started in a rugby club for five years. It was just almost pretty much exactly the same as this kind of thing. Um, you know, the cloud of witnesses looking down upon us from the <laughs> Mount Monganui Rugby Club. Kids that you thought were getting into worship were actually just singing the results from the latest club games that were up on the wall and stuff like that. So... You know, this reminds me so much of St. Luke's. I feel very comfortable here, and it is a delight to be with you. Uh, I just want to encourage you, you know, newborn babies do grow up, and it happens really quick. And sometimes when you've got this newborn, you just kind of are sleepless and stressed, and all you want this thing to do is to grow up quickly. Uh, and, you know, anyone that's a parent knows that they do, do grow up quickly. Uh, but, you know, church plants grow up quickly as well, and I would want to encourage you, don't kind of... Don't hanker for what's around the corner. Don't hanker for what could be in three years or four years or five years' time. Because I, I look around and I see what's happening here and I go, oh, this is just the beginnings of something that's going to be awesome. Uh, you know, there's kids everywhere. Our church is just, there's like way too many kids kind of thing. Kids everywhere. Everybody's engaging in the worship. Everyone's friendly and talking and these kinds of things. You can feel that God is here. It's like this is the beginning of something awesome. This is going to grow to be something awesome. But it's easy to think about that and to look to that and to miss that. There's actually awesome. This is, it's beautiful right now. This is, this is the beautiful right now bit. You don't have to just wait for, you know, I have people now, we're seven years into it, they go, oh, I remember the olden days. It's like, you know, remember when, you know, remember when it was just the 12 string leading worship kind of thing. It's like, oh yeah, those days that, you know, and you do, you move on and you grow and things change. But there's always that group that were the year ones kind of thing. You know, like the ones in 95 that started supporting the warriors faithfully like me. <laughs> But, you know, there's more potential in this church than the Warriors. So uh, don't, um, you know, don't just hanker for what's around the corner. Celebrate and enjoy today because it's a beautiful thing. Lord, I thank you can be here this morning. Even as Sam said, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be something that is pleasing to you. Uh, let it be encouraging. Let it be provocative. Let it be challenging. Let it be stretching. Let it be whatever it needs to be for different people this morning. We thank you that you delight to meet us each right where we're at. Uh, ultimately, let it complement everything that's happening here at Bay Vineyard. Let it feed into that and in some way help shape this church to be all it's called to be. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So we're in Luke chapter 7, or you're in Luke chapter 7. We've got some other scriptures up on the um, screen there. Uh, Luke chapter 4, Jesus is preaching his first ever sermon and he quotes from Isaiah, um, takes this ancient prophecy and, refer, and, you know, and takes it to be a reference to himself. Reads it out and says, today the scripture has been fulfilled you know, in your presence. You know, that preaching class 101, it's like, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't take ancient prophecies in your first sermon, read them out and then say, yeah, that's all about me. They really encourage you not to do that. But Jesus, he's not afraid of the mic drop kind of moment. And he says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he kind of unpacks this a little bit. and I mean, obviously his whole life unpacks this. But there's three other instances where he says, hey, the Son of Man came to do this. And kind of unpacks it a little bit. In Luke 19.10, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Mark 10.45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those are probably the two, you know, the Son of Man came to verses that we're most familiar with. But Luke 7, 34, the Son of Man came eating 
and drinking. And that's the one I want to talk about this morning, the eating and drinking, son of man. You know, Jesus has a, a bit of a habit of turning up on the scene, not quite how people expected. Emmanuel, God with us. And people had all these ideas of what it would look like when Messiah came, when God came and presenced himself with us in the Messiah. They had these kind of expectations. But Jesus had a way of, in many senses, of letting people down in regards to the expectations they had and then just flipping it all upside down and showing them whole different ways of being in the world. He didn't come in a blaze of glory. He came lowly, born in a manger. He didn't come prancing around on a war horse. Jesus came and was led into the city on a peace donkey. He didn't come as a famous dignitary. He came as a suffering servant. Uh, he certainly didn't come as some sort of you know, unusual man you know, with a magic carpet sleeping on a bed of nails, nothing like this. Uh, in his own words, he came eating and drinking. Eating and drinking. Even the disciples were a little bit disappointed in that. At one stage, they wanted Messiah to be like a call down fire from heaven and blast people kind of Messiah. They're like, oh, please, Jesus, could we do this? He's like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. It's eating and drinking. If you read through Mark's gospel, thinking about eating and drinking, most of the time Jesus is on his way to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. It's pretty much, it's like, you know, if you're not reading it, paying attention to it, you miss it. But if you're thinking about eating and drinking, you're like, this dude pretty much all he does is house party after house party kind of thing. Even in John, uh, the end of John's gospel, um, we find Jesus barbecuing fish on a beach for his disciples. This whole death on a cross, kind of descending to the dead, resurrection three days later. What's he going to do now? You know, this big major thing's happening. I know, I'll call the boys together. We'll have a barbecue on the beach and I'll cook them some fish on a fire. Eating and drinking is a pretty big deal. We're, you know, we're as likely to find Jesus um, preaching in a synagogue as what we are to find him with a kind of a glass of red wine in hand and some barbecue tongs at a barbecue at a housewarming talking about faith, hope, and love. This is the Son of Man that came eating and drinking. Not everyone liked this, of course. This, is, this didn't make everybody happy. Uh, the Pharisees, they've got a tendency to um, be unhappy at pretty much about everything. But they were very put off by the eating and drinking. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to be more like John and his disciples who spent a lot of time fasting and praying. You know, shouldn't you be spending more time fasting and praying in the wilderness? Not, this, not all this kind of, you know, banqueting with all the wrong people. The, the challenge there was the Pharisees, they didn't like the fasting and the praying that John and his disciples were doing either. So you kind of can't win with them. But it lands us here in Luke 7, uh, up on the slide here. This eating and drinking. These Pharisees that aren't on board with John, and his prayer and fasting, and aren't on board with Jesus and his feasting and banqueting. You know, you, you can't win with them. Here's a text this morning. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? And he's referring here particularly to the Pharisees. Uh, what, what, are these, what are they like? These experts in God's law, what are they like? He says, they're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling, uh, sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played a pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. A pipe, and you didn't dance. A dirge, and you didn't cry. This is a line from one of Aesop's fables, and we don't really need to get into the context of Aesop's fable. But Jesus takes this known line from a known story and just kind of reappropriates it for a point that he's looking to make. You could say it like this. Um, John the Baptist says, repent and be baptized. Die to sin. It's a dirge, it's a funeral song. But no, you don't cry out, 
you don't repent, you don't take up sackcloth and ashes and go into mourning, you don't, you don't enter into this kind of dying to oneself, you just kind of carry on in your own way. Then Jesus comes along and says, come follow me and you'll discover the year of the Lord's favor. If you're thirsty, I'm living water, drink and thirst no more. A pipe's played, a merry song, a joyous song. Come on, you know, you can come and get engaged, you can, you're invited to join into what's happening here. And nope, they don't dance, they don't cheer, they don't celebrate, they don't participate in what is happening either. A funeral song, and they don't get excited about. A merry song, and they don't get excited about that either. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. These Pharisees always struggling to keep in step with what it is that God is doing. The feasting of John the Baptist missed it. Oh, sorry, the fasting of John the Baptist, they missed it. The feasting of Jesus, they missed that as well. This whole new thing that God is doing in Jesus, they missed that too. So what is this new thing? What is this eating and drinking thing that Jesus is doing? Well, when the Israelites were following Moses through the wilderness, out of Israel, and they're journeying uh, out of uh, Egypt, and they're journeying through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, uh, food is scarce, of course. They were hungry. But God supplies manna, the stuff that would kind of appear on the ground in the morning, and they'd collect it up, kind of a seed kind of thing, but they'd crush it up, and they'd they kind of bake it into a cake or bake it into a kind of bread and they'd, they'd eat that. Um, you'd collect enough to sustain you for the day, but any more and it would spoil. So the idea is you've got, uh, you know, always just enough, but never any more. Now the crowds are following Jesus. And at one stage they're in the wilderness. They're in this kind of similar occasion to Israel following Moses through the wilderness. Now we've got crowds have gathered to follow Jesus. They find themselves out in the wilderness through or with Moses, God provided manna. Well, what is God going to provide to feed us through this Jesus character? And we have this feeding of the 5,000 thing that unfolds. It's like, yeah, hey, there's this bread. Moses had manna. You know, Jesus is providing bread. This is, this is a good thing. Um, and then in John 6, it carries on. They actually ask. They ask, what's the sign that will, you know, be proof to us that you are the son of God? What's the sign that will be the proof that we should follow you, we should look to you, we should pay attention to what you are doing? Uh, is, is, you know, the bread thing, is that going to be your thing? Moses' thing was manna. Is your thing, you know, you say these amazing graces and like, you know, five loaves and two fish can feed 5,000 people. Are you going to be the bread guy? And, um, you know, what is it that Jesus is going to do to prove that he's legit? And Jesus says this, well, he says if you want it, God's going to give you bread from heaven. The bread that comes down and gives life to the world. And they're like, yeah, we want that. Please give that to us. And you kind of got to appreciate, they're kind of imagining manna 2.0. They're kind of imagining something like this manna stuff that they have from this history, these stories that have been passed down to them. Warm vacacia bread, dead sea salt, rosemary dipped in olive oil. You can always kind of smell it kind of thing. I mean, it would go down well quite right now kind of thing. You can kind of <clears throat> imagine that. And then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. 
It's this big kind of mic drop moment when you think about it. We've already had one in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus quotes Isaiah and says, yep, you know that Isaiah prophecy, famous one, been around for hundreds of years? It's about me. It's like, whoa. Now we've got another one kind of thing because Jesus has been in the wilderness. Jesus has been in the desert and has been tempted to turn the stones into bread. And he says, no, 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 no. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then he says that, and then a little longer later, a little bit later in the story, he says, oh, and by the way, I am the bread that came to give life to the world. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You need to understand, I'm the living bread. I am the word of God that gives life to the world. Kind of thing. I mean, this is outrageous. This is a scandalous thing to kind of say. This is another big kind of mic drop moment. That Isaiah prophecy, yep, that's me. Uh, the bread of the world, uh, bread, yeah, we don't live by that. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. By the way, I'm the word that proceeds. I'm the word from God to you. And it's this in which you'll find life and sustenance and hope and possibility. I'm the word that sustains all things. Jesus is kind of saying, you're hungry in life, not just for food, but are you hungry in your soul? Are you hungry in some ways at the depths of your being? Well, I've become, I'm the one that has come to satisfy that hunger at the depths of your being. Come follow me. Come and eat with me. Walk with me. Keep my commandments. Live in step with me and discover how slowly as you do that, you'll begin to feel fed. You'll begin to feel sustained. You'll begin to feel satisfied. You'll be hungry, but then you'll eat this bread of life that is me and you'll hunger no more. It says you'll drink this living water and you will thirst no more. Jesus doesn't, doesn't just talk about this, though. Jesus doesn't just leave this as a metaphor. Jesus enacts this out. Um, ultimately, the eating and drinking of Jesus is a picture of the kingdom of God. Son of man came eating and drinking. When we look at the way that he eats and he drinks, we see the kingdom of God enacted. We see the bread of life. We see the living water kind of given not just a metaphor, but, a, but an actual tangible taste and touch and smell kind of reality. Feeding the 5,000, baskets and baskets of food left over. There's this more than enough nature to the kingdom of God. It's a picture of the kingdom come. The wedding at Cana, uh, one of my favorite stories. He instructs the, uh, the servants, you know, Mary says, his mum's like, you know, you can do this. He's like, woman, my time hasn't come yet. But it's his mum, so what are you going to do? So uh, he, he turns to the servants and he says, I'll fill up these, these six stone jars that are there. Fill them up with water. And, and what comes out? This fine wine comes out. But the six jars, you've got to appreciate, they're, they're purification jars that are used for ceremonial washing. And, and archaeologists, they've got oodles of these things. They range from 75 to 113 litres each. And when you do the calculations of that on a 750ml bottle of wine, etc., etc., that's between 600 and 900 bottles of wine. Now, even if you're Irish, that's a lot of alcohol. <laughs> and it's the finest wine. You know, it's the finest wine, between 600 and 900 bottles of wine. It's an enormous quantity. It's way more than is enough. Why? Because it's this picture of the kingdom of God. It's a picture of what this bread of life looks like. It's this picture of what living water looks like. It's more than enough. It's more than is needed. And it's the best vintage. It's the best quality kind of thing. 
It's this picture of the kingdom of God come. The people that Jesus eats with, the sinners and the tax collectors, all manner of people, the last and the least and the unlikely, the sellouts and the castouts and the washedouts. Jesus sits down and shares a meal with them. First century context, though it's not too different in a 21st century context, to share table fellowship, to sit around a meal with somebody is an extension of inclusion and friendship and, you know, you're part of the family, you're in kind of thing. To sit down and share in a meal is to say you're in. If, if enemies were to gather and to share a meal together, suddenly animosity has been put aside. We've reconciled. We're, we're back on the same page kind of thing. There's all these traditions. If you, if you watch, you know, movies set in Turkey or these kind of places in, the, in that kind of, you know, these epic sagas, like, you know, nobody pulls out a knife at a meal, at a dinner table kind of thing, because this is, this, is this, is, this is life. This is food. This is, we sit down and we share this meal together and we are one. Problem is Jesus is sharing meals with all the wrong people, all the ones you're not supposed to be sharing meals with. He's sitting down and hanging out and having a barbecue and saying, yeah, such is the kingdom of God. It's a picture of the kingdom come. So I'm not sure what you imagine the kingdom of God to be like, what you imagine it means to be a Christian. You know, for some, the kingdom of God and being a Christian, it's the, kind of like the Christmas naughty and nice list. It's like, well, there's a lot of things that you... Um, can't do. Uh, actually, mainly it's things you can't do. There's, hu- there's actually hundreds and thousands of things on the can't do list. Um, nice wine right at the top kind of thing. But, you know, there's all these things you can't do. And there's a few things that you can do. Oh, what are they? Oh, you can go to church. Um, you can give. Um, yeah, I think that's about it kind of thing. I, I don't know what you, you, you imagine it to be, what the picture it is that you have. What, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to be a part of the kingdom of God? And sometimes it's all a black and white and dreary kind of a thing. But when we look at the kingdom of God, when we look at the eating and drinking of Jesus, what we see is a picture of the, God, a picture of the kingdom of God, which is more like, hey, if you want to be a part of this kingdom of God thing, come and take a seat at the table. You know, pull up a seat, there's space for you. You know, and you, you know, kind of Jesus stands there, yeah, and I'll, and I'll pour you the glass of wine kind of thing. Come and be included in this thing that is called the kingdom of God, this, this joyous, bubbly, overflowing feast kind of thing that everybody is invited to participate in. I mean, what does Jesus say in Revelation chapter 3? He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into their heart and live with them forever. That's not what it says. It says, I'll come in and eat with that person, and they will eat with me. The picture is this, this meal. The metaphor is this meal. And when we look at the eating of Jesus, it's not just a metaphor. He's actually enacting this and living this out. But, but the kingdom of God is this, this feast, this banquet that we are invited to take a seat at and to discover that Christ is the host that breaks the bread and pours the wine, and it's the finest wine, and there's more than enough, and there's a seat at the table for you. Everybody is invited. It's this table fellowship kind of thing. One of the implications of this for you and I is that our own eating and drinking has the potential to serve as an expression of the kingdom of God. Now that doesn't we have mean you know we have to embrace extravagant hospitality kind of thing that's beyond us. We're not all Chelsea Winter. Uh, you know, at one stage Jesus says, you know, you gave a cup of water to the least of these. Well, kingdom come with a cup of water kind of thing. But it's an invitation in our own eating and drinking 
to allow that to be an expression, an extension, a manifestation of the kingdom of God. It means learning to open our eyes to the possibility that the kingdom of God shows up at mealtimes, not just in meetings. And one of our values at St. Luke's is uh, less meetings and more barbecues kind of thing. Because the kingdom of God can come around a barbecue as much as in a meeting. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, the message version. Here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Or in other words, when you eat and drink, you can eat and drink in such a way, you can extend hospitality in such a way that it is an offering to God. Sam already said this morning, we, you know, the singing isn't the worship. The singing is the thing that then allows us to kind of worship. Worship's this other thing that's happening on the inside. Sometimes we can sing the song and not be worshiping. Other times we can not be singing the song and our hearts are overflowing with worship. Our meals are an opportunity to worship God in the way that we eat and drink. Again, eating and drinking is not worship to God, but the way that we eat and drink has the potential to be something that is worship to God. Or in other words, it's not just the bread and wine of communion that's sacramental. Every meal is loaded with sacramental potential. Every meal is an opportunity to remember that food is not just about eating, that wine's not just about drinking, that hospitality isn't just about cooking. There's more going on if we would open our eyes to see the more that is going on. That's why we say grace. That's why we begin our meals in prayer. To be mindful, to be present, to be more aware of what is taking place. Someone this week says to you, ah, you know, the guy that's doing his PhD that came and talked at church, what did he talk about? Just say that. I just did a sermon about saying grace before dinner. Because it all kind of comes down to saying grace before dinner is really what it comes down to. This is what Jesus did. He, he, he took the, the five loaves and the two fish and he, and he stood and he said, Heavenly Father, and he began that meal in grace. And there's an invitation for us to do the same. I go to a lot of pastors' things because I'm a pastor and so you go to a lot of pastors' things. And often there's meals and one of the things you notice heaps is like all these pastors kind of standing around and there's this meal ready to go on a table and they're all kind of standing around in a circle all kind of fidgety and... Nobody can touch the meal yet because nobody said grace. And then finally somebody, oh, yeah, I food, amen. And then you kind of all, did I do that? <laughs> no, that's not grace. That's being religious. And that's somebody ticked the box that gave everyone permission to dig in kind of thing. It's my kids' prayers. You know, one, two, three, four, five, thank you, God, that we're alive. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, thank you for the food, amen. When we grew up, it was thank you, Jesus, for this food, amen. That was like, that was, we, you know. No, no, grace is this. Grace is this moment to pause before we eat, to open our eyes, to see that there's way more going on. It's an opportunity to remember that the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and what might that mean for us? So we we pause before a meal and we say grace. We thank God for his provision. Because ultimately food's a result of God's good creation, God's grace to us. Every plant, every herb, the fruit of the vine, this this blue-green blob that we live on and the, the variety that it produces is ultimately God's gift to us, the food that it produces. Food is a central ingredient in our experience of God's goodness. Food is a central ingredient in our experience of God's goodness. 
Which is why it's an injustice that people go hungry. That's what makes the fact that people don't have meals such an injustice that we need to try and figure out how to fix up and mend and restore. Because the kingdom of God is, and that, which is why the kingdom of, comes, kingdom of God comes when we feed the hungry, give to the poor. So we thank God for his provision and we recognize that this is something that has been graced to us from God. We thank God for the hands that have prepared the meal. Because a meal is an expression of love. Someone has paid for the meal. Someone's worked to provide the food. Someone's prepared the meal. Someone has taken raw ingredients and combined them in some sort of unique way or not very unique way, whatever it is that they've done kind of thing. But these hands have lovingly prepared this meal for you. I do a little bit of cooking in our house, but mainly, mainly, my wife does all the cooking. It is always an expression of love. I mean, I always appreciate it. Always, 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 always. My kids don't, always, because kids are kids. Lisa makes this beautiful chicken pie. It's got like, so on the table you just get served up chicken pie. That's all it is, because it's, it's chicken and creamy gravy and there's leeks and veg. It's just the most delicious chicken pie you've ever had. And I sit down for dinner, it's like, oh, we're having the chicken pie. The kids sit down, they're like, is this the only option? <laughs> it's like, the only option? What did you want? Sausages? It's like, oh man, kids just don't get it. But a meal is always an expression of love. Someone's paid for the food. Someone's prepared the food. Someone has set a place for you at the table. Someone has said, look, come, come. There's, there's a place for you at the table. It's a gift. A meal is a gift for others. Which is why hospitality is such an incredible grace that we can give and receive from one another. Never take for granted if somebody invites you around for a meal. Makes space for you at the table shares with you the food, which is the very thing that sustains life. What an extension of love and grace. Even if it is two-minute cup of soup and a loaf of bread that's been baked in the oven, it's, it's, it's an expression of love that we want to appreciate. We say thanks for that. We don't take it for granted. We thank God for the company with which we have to share a meal. Because ultimately sharing a meal is less about sharing a meal and actually more about sharing one's life with somebody. We pause, we slow down, and we connect with one another over a meal. The gift of food is ultimately just an excuse to then be able to give us to each other the gift of ourselves. Over meals, we share stories, we hear stories. We laugh and we cry together, we celebrate. We heal over meals, we become whole over meals. Life bursts forth around a meal, and you know you, you can't, you know you can't not make that happen. It's really hard to not have a dinner party and end up with people, you know, getting to know each other and becoming friends. And that was such a life-giving thing to do. We share our table with others, and masks come down, divides come down. We extend hospitality and grace and generosity to one another. We welcome family, we welcome friends, we welcome strangers. We welcome to our tables those that have no table to sit at, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We make a space for them. And then over a meal, well, strangers become friends. Over a meal, Sam and I became best mates over Mexican, and then we've continued that over pizza, uh, Indian, you know, there's all sorts. We're just, we're just working our way through all the ethnicities of the world. We've got about 59 to go, I think, so let's get on to that. 
Strangers become friends over meals. People fall in love over meals. You know, you don't take your wife out for dinner because you want a steak. You take your wife out for dinner because you want to look into her eyes or fall in love and be mesmerized and all these kinds of things. People fall in love over meals. Families become families around meals. The family sits down together. It's what it is to be the family. Ultimately, what, what is a family? Family are the people that share meals together. The special meals like Christmas and Easter and these other feasts that we have, but the, the regular meals as well. Families are the ones that sit down and share their meal together. You know, the church becomes the church around the table of the Lord where we share this meal together, where we break bread and take wine together. We pass condiments and cutlery, we share pizza and pale ales, and people discover there's a place for them at the table, that they have dignity and value and worth. I remember uh, at one stage, we had, we had a dinner party at our house one night, and um, you know it was one of those ones where you spend a little more on the steak than what you normally would, and you, you open that bottle of wine that you'd, you know, had been sitting there that you wanted to open heaps of times, but it just wasn't the right time to open that bottle of wine, mainly because you're home alone, but you know, it just wasn't, it was, the, it was that special that special bottle of wine, and you open, you know, you get the nicer steak, and you get the nicer wine, and we, we sit down with friends that are gathered, and starts at like three o'clock in the afternoon these days, because we've all got kids, and they, they you know, they tire, but you knew it was going to go later than it should have anyway, but you know, it starts at three o'clock, and we share this meal, share this wine, and it's just beautiful, and then finally it's dark, it takes a long time in daylight savings hours, finally it's dark, and the kids are outside playing spotlight with iPhones, because that's the world that we live in these days. And it just left, um, there's about eight of us adults sitting around the table kind of thing. A little bit stressed about $1,000 phones outside playing Spotlight, but you know, we're laughing and joking and sharing and talking as we kind of you know, finish up dessert and start making cups of tea and stuff like that. And it's chitter, chatter, chat, chat, chat. And then it kind of just went, it just went kind of silent. All it kind of, you know those weird things where everyone's talking and then suddenly it goes silent all at the same time. It was just all silent. You could just hear the kids outside laughing. Everyone just kind of took a deep breath and just kind of pauses, and there's this beautiful stillness. And Maybe you could say like this, there's this, there's this sense where we just had this moment where we realized we're standing on holy ground, and we did not realize it. But in that moment, you realized, isn't this, this is, this is how it's supposed to be. This is shalom, this is kingdom come, this is peace on earth, this is, this is, this is table fellowship, this is friendship, this is... This is family kind of thing. You just pause and you take that deep breath. No masks, no pretensions, no striving, no competing, no winning or losing. No mortgage payments. Just an awareness and aliveness to the presence of God in this God-saturated world that we live in. Around a meal on a Friday night kind of thing. This beautiful kind of, kind of moment. We pause and we still ourselves. We say grace, and we recognize that Christ is also present with us. That Christ is not far away, but in the ascension, he moves to this heavenly realm, which is just there, which is just beyond this place that we live in. In Celtic spirituality, they talk about thin places, where the veil between heaven and earth feels almost translucent, and you just are aware that the presence of God is just there. In this meal, there's this moment we pause and we recognize that Christ is present with us at this meal. 
that there's a bigger reality unfolding than what we necessarily realize. That God's joyful feast of new creation is not just something away off in the future one day, but something that is breaking in even as we break bread together. We become connoisseurs of this God-saturated world rather than consumers scoffing it down, unaware of the true beauty that is unfolding all around us. Connoisseurs of a God-saturated world rather than consumers just scoffing down the next dinner. Maybe Chris could come. We're going to gather this morning. We're going to take communion together. I'm going to read a little story that a friend of mine wrote. It's called A Bear with Jesus. He's not sure what he believes about Jesus at the moment, but he wrote this story. He says, halfway through the sermon, I kissed my wife on the cheek and told her I was going out for some fresh air. Truth is, I felt like a bear. I sat on the steps in the sun, wondering why we stuff ourselves indoors on days like this. Obviously, he wrote this in summer rather than in Napier in the middle of winter. Truth is, I felt like a bear. I sat on the steps in the sun, wondering why we stuff ourselves indoors on days like this. Then I heard a familiar clink of cold green glass. I looked up and Jesus was standing in front of me holding a couple of beers. Don't ask how I knew it was him. You'll know too. When God incarnate turns up with a beer. IPA, I noted, and he nodded. No point skipping church for a lager, he said. Cheers. We drank for a while. I asked him, shouldn't you be in church? He stared straight back at me. Shouldn't you? Being Jesus, he answers every question with a question. I shrugged. You tell me, I said, it's your church. He didn't respond, just looked over the bottle at me with his volcanic brown eyes. You don't look much like the pictures I've seen, I said. He replied, I don't think that's ever been your problem. No, I said, I don't suppose it has been. The sun was hot. The beer was perfect, cold and lightly perspiring on the bottle. Beautiful day, I said. Thanks, said Jesus. (laughs) I laughed and took another swig. The questions I'd always wanted to ask had suddenly ducked their cowardly little heads. I said to Jesus, you know that I don't believe in you much anymore, don't you? He said, that may be the case, but you're still drinking my beer. We're going to take communion together this morning. And it may be that for you, you don't perhaps believe much anymore these days. Perhaps you've never really believed. Perhaps you're wanting to believe, but it's early days and you're trying to figure it out. That's all right. There's space for you at the table this morning. Even if you don't really believe, you'll still be drinking his beer. Wow, the bread and wine of communion that we're going to break in a moment. Christ's body broken for us and his blood poured out, poured out for us. And you are welcome at the table. A few years ago, I heard from the, I was cooking dinner, and I heard from the lounge, um, the smallest voice in our family, the little guy asking his big brother with great concern, is Iron Man going to be okay? It was pretty cute. His brother, of course, was able to explain that, yeah, Iron Man, he'll be all right. Just, you know, watch to the end of the movie. When it was time for dinner, though, I called them to the table, and that same little voice, full of concern, didn't bother to ask, is there a place for me at the table? Because even as a little guy who might be a little bit worried about Iron Man, he knows there's a place for him at the table. He's family. There's always a space for him at the table. He just assumes there'll be a space for him at the table. Why would there not be a space for me? There's been a space for me at the table my whole life. 
as we gather around the Lord's table. Some of you, perhaps, with concern in your voice, may be wondering, is there space at the table for me? There's always space at the table for you. There's always been space at the table for you. As we gather at the Lord's table this morning, know there is a space for you. We call it the Lord's table. We gather and we eat at the Lord's table Sunday after Sunday. Not because it's only a little piece of bread and a little juice and it's never really quite enough and so you need to come back next Sunday to get, a, get another bit and you just wonder why they couldn't just splurge out a bit. No, it's not a table of manna where there's, you know, just enough but never anymore. That's not what it's about. We gather again and again and again because this is the feast above feasts. This is the meal above meals. This is, this is the eating and the drinking that we do that gives shape to all of the other eating and drinking that we do. This is the eating and drinking where we practice gathering with strangers and becoming friends. Where we practice making space at the table for those that don't have a table of their own. We practice eating and drinking even as Christ came to eat and drink. We, we practice this here on a Sunday with eyes open to the love and the grace and the goodness of God extended towards us. His body broken, His blood poured out that we might receive life. And we gather that and we do that again and again and again, Sunday after Sunday, we remind ourselves of this. The bread that causes us to hunger no more, the, the drink that causes us to thirst no more. We practice that and then we, we go out into the world. We scatter as the church. We know that we'll gather back as the church again, but we scatter to be the church in the highways and byways of life and the nooks and crannies of life. And we, we have opportunities all the time to buy somebody a coffee and sit at a table, to invite someone over for dinner, to share lunch with somebody in the smoker room, and to let that be an opportunity where Christ is presence with us, where, where love and grace is extended over that meal, even as we've experienced it at the Lord's table on Sunday. The feast above feasts, it's the meal above meal. It's the first meal of the week that gives shape to all the rest of the eating. And drinking that we do. It's the table of the Lord where the church becomes the church. Families gather around the dinner table, churches gather around the Lord's table, and we become the church as we do that together. It's where we come to receive the love and the hospitality of God, who in his kindness and goodness was willing to prepare a meal that was different to all the other meals that we eat. That somehow his only son would give his life and somehow that would be something, where, you know, he says, you're going to, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can't, it's like, what's going on here? It's this other sort of meal that feeds us to the depth of our being, to the core of our soul, that sustains us in life for the other eating and drinking. We come and receive the love and the hospitality of God. Christ's body broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us, that we might know grace and mercy and reconciliation in all things. What does Jesus say? He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And whoever opens the door and lets me in, I'll come and eat with them. I'll come and share a meal with them. We'll sit around the table and we'll become friends. Same invitation exists for you this morning. 